Welcome back to Scripps Talks. Today we have David Lee joining us from South Korea. David finished up grad work in 2018, still working on his uh, research project, but doing some reporting in Korea right now. We saw some recent work that he did on the coronavirus, and I wanted to have him join us, talk a little bit about what's going on in South Korea. Welcome to Scripps Talks. Thank you. I'm really glad to be on here. I'm a fan. <laughs> well, thank you for that. We, we love to get a chance to spotlight some of the work that our students and alumni are doing. And we know South Korea has been very much in the story on COVID-19. You're doing some reporting on this. So maybe you could give us a little update on what is happening in South Korea right now, and then a little update on how you are managing as well. It's been maybe three days since the daily confirmed cases that come out every morning has been around the 50s. Today it was below 50. It was like 48, I think. So that's, you know, very positive because, you know, it was in the hundreds and, you know, a month ago it was in the thousands. So we made a lot of progress. Recently, we another big milestone we reached was that over 50% of confirmed cases. Now we have more than um, 10,000 confirmed cases, but more than half of those cases, 7,000, so actually like 70% of those cases, they were recovered, so they were released from quarantine. Yeah, so that was another big big, uh, milestone for the country. What has South Korea been doing that is so effective? This has, you know, been covered internationally, and I think a lot of countries are saying we're like the prime example of a country that hasn't really shut down its economy, but still has managed to somehow contain a lot of the spread of the virus. I think the biggest thing is the mass testing that the country has really emphasized since the beginning of the virus in, inside the country, you know, which was, I think, before Lunar New Year holiday, which is like the one of the two biggest national holidays in the country. The exact date was January 20th when the first case was revealed inside the country. The Korea Centers for Disease Control and Prevention got their testing uh, approved on uh, in the beginning of February, so very close to the spotting of the first confirmed case inside the country. Um, so that's when they started asking domestic pharmaceutical companies to mass produce these testing kits. Today, there's been over uh, half a million tests that have been tested on people. I think what's been really effective is that even people without symptoms, these people have been tested, and there have been a very effective uh, tools such as uh, drive-through testing areas where it only takes 10 minutes for someone to get tested for the virus, and they can know if they have the virus in three days' time. Mass testing was definitely one of the major factors. Another one is contact tracing and isolation methods that the government used. And I know that some countries, including the U.S., kind of frowned upon when, when, they, when they heard about this, like this method, they kind of frowned upon how a breach of privacy was, you know, an issue here. For the most part, I think Koreans, they didn't really have a big problem. You know, so con- contact tracing is where uh, someone who's confirmed of having the virus, the Korea Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they look up phone records and their credit card records, and they find out where they were, who they were with. They also contact those people, and they make all this information public on their website. There's been some controversy, um, you know, of 
of people not wanting their personal information for obvious reasons for everyone to see. Even though like they don't release the names, you can kind of you know close friends or families can kind of uh, figure out you know by looking at the region and, and the timing and all that. But I think one of the big reasons that Koreans didn't really have a major problem with this was because they have been through the 2003 SARS and the 2015 MERS syndrome, where not as many people died, like only 36 people, I think, died during the 2015 MERS situation, and no one died during the 2003 SARS uh, situation. But because they have gone through somewhat of a similar situation in the past, they know how important these uh, protocols are for the safety of, of the country. So I think that's one of the major reasons that they uh, went along with the government's countermeasures. You can't ignore the fact that people did follow through with strict quarantine measures that the government put in place, even though that's kind of changed in the past, I want to say, month, and especially the past few weeks, it's really changed. Yeah, the situation has really changed. Let's actually uh, talk about that because, you know, here mm-hmm. in the U.S., we're, we're still approaching the apex. And so there's, there's a lot of speculation, you know, about when will life start to return back to normal. Mm-hmm. So what kind of signs uh, in South Korea are there that things are at least inching back toward normalcy? A lot. <laughs> you can see a lot just by going outside, just by looking on, you know, Instagram, Facebook, people don't go to school a lot of people work at home these days so you can see a lot of parents taking their kids to the park with their bikes their rollerblades people having picnics everywhere even though they are keeping like the social distancing if you look from far away you kind of see that people are not sitting too close to each other but it's still obvious that parks malls shops restaurants they're all packed and yeah, something that caught me by surprise was that amusement parks are still open and they're apparently packed and full of lines. Another major one was, I think maybe two days ago, the government made an administrative order, which is kind of confusing. They didn't really force businesses to close, but they strongly recommend businesses such as we have something that's called a PC bang, which is a business that is full of computers next to each other like maybe like hundreds of computers and because korea is so well known for its computer gaming culture these pc bombs are full of students of of children and you know they play games in this big room with each other Um, these pc bombs are open and and they're booming like usual public bathhouses are also they've never closed and you know there have been confirmed cases coming out they're still uh, doing good business clubs at night nightlife is still big thing these days yeah you can see it everywhere and i was going to mention this earlier but i think that and including other experts in the country um, many people are thinking that you know this reputation that south korea uh, received as like the prime example of combating this virus it's it's kind of acting as a double-edged sword because on one side people may have more trust in the government because there are signs that the government is doing something good, you know, going in, in the right direction. But on the other hand, I think it gives them the wrong impression this pandemic is, you know, the effects are decreasing, I think. But I think a lot of people are, are maybe underestimating the impact uh, that it, it may still have. This was shown actually a week ago when 
people from abroad, so Korean nationals living abroad, they started to come in to South Korea from countries like the U.S. or countries in Europe. And I think more than a third of confirmed cases from past three or two weeks in, in March came from people from overseas. So there's this lingering threat of a second wave. Um, I don't know if it's already arrived, but it's something that people are concerned about. What are you able to do as a journalist in covering the story? What type of restrictions or not uh, have you experienced uh, when trying to cover the story? I actually haven't faced any real restrictions, I don't think. I think one of the main differences, and I'm comparing it to the U.S. because obviously that's where you are, and, I, and I'm guessing most of the listeners are in the U.S., nothing really is closed here except schools, but they opened again today actually. But obviously they're doing online classes instead of meeting in their classrooms. Nothing's really closed in South Korea. I can call any office or I can make an appointment with people. People are not that afraid of going out and meeting people. I know that like when this pandemic started, when it was a lesser threat, I know that when I called you know, some companies and asked for interviews, they would ask to postpone the interviews because of the, of the virus. Uh, nowadays, I'm getting through calls and nothing's really hindering my work reporting. What kind of stories have you been focusing on during this time and, and where are they uh, being published? I'm a freelance reporter currently. Most of my work uh, is with the South China Morning Post, which is based in Hong Kong. Most of my work related to COVID-19 has to do with how people are impacted by the current situation. One of my first stories on the virus was about Chunji Church, and I should also mention this because this is actually probably the biggest controversy that came out. It's the biggest cult church in South Korea. It was known to have 260,000 members, but after a couple of super spreaders came out of the church, the government uh, investigated the whole organization. You know, it cracked down on its headquarters. I think this case really shows how thorough the contact tracing and isolation methods that the government has in place because the government actually went and investigated all 300,000 members of the cult church. You know, I don't know how the investigate, like what the investigations entail, but reports are saying that the government checked all the identities of the members of the cult church. So what happened was in Daegu, which is a city, I think it's the third biggest, um, yeah, sorry, my knowledge of Korea is not the best still. Uh, it's been a year and a half, but uh, anyways, it's a city in southwest Korea. Uh, the 31st confirmed case uh, uh, inside the country came out of a branch of the cult church in Daegu. And uh, this was when the epidemic was slowly picking up, but it wasn't really considered like a huge threat yet. After the 31st case came out of this this branch of the church, in a matter of days, the confirmed cases jumped up to, I think, 1,700. And then from then on, it just you know skyrocketed. And that's when South Korea became the country with the second most confirmed cases in the world behind China. My story on the Xinchanji church was talking about how there were rumors at that time. There were reports that 
when the 31st case came out of this church, the government tried to contact trace the person was with at the church at the time. A lot of the members avoided calls from the government, avoided being investigated. And this was because Shinchenji Church is known, you know, it's a cult church, you know, it's, it's known to be secretive. No one outside of the church really knows what goes on inside the church. And, you know, after this case blew, it's, that's when people realized that the reason that this virus spread so quickly in the church was that some of the practices that they had inside the church was where, you know, they knelt down in close proximity to each other and they ate together. And I guess they were hands together at many times of the service. My story also delved into how the leader of the church the cult church, uh, Iman He. He is considered the second coming of Jesus. Apparently, he sent a message to his followers saying that, you know, this virus is is kind of like a, a threat from the devil. He mentioned that uh, the government is trying to break us down. There were all these rumors, and I was trying to talk to some of the past members of the cult who came out and who still had contact with people inside the church still. What they told me was that these rumors might be true. And later, it turned out that some of the rumors were true, that the followers inside the cult church, they avoid going to the hospital, trying to disguise their identity and connection to the church. Another one was how students inside South Korea are affected. South Korea is uh, I don't know if you know, but it's uh, it's known for its high standardized testing scores and graduation rates. So students here are known to study from morning to night, you know, going to school and then going to after school academies and then maybe having a private tutor or two coming to their house and then going to night study hall sessions at school again. So they've lived with this daily routine all their lives and then suddenly their spring break is not just uh, two weeks, but it became close to 40 days and they were under this uncertainty of when schools would reopen, how it would reopen, when their college entrance exam would be postponed until and by the way, their college entrance exam, which is called tuning here, is considered a life-changing event. Businesses uh, open at a later time during the test day so that there's not so much traffic during the morning so students are late going to the test centers. I interviewed some of the students to see how they were coping with staying at home all day and how they were coping with their studies. Many of the students I talked to, they were very anxious. I think, you know, as many people are in the world right now, you know, they're questioning a lot of things. But I think some of the, some interesting points that I found out in this, uh, while reporting for the story was that uh, some of the students were, to some extent, enjoying some of the newfound freedom that they didn't taste when life was normal and, you know, they were under this tight schedule of studying from morning to night every day. It was uh, kind of refreshing uh, for me, I guess, to see some people finding hope under these circumstances. Give me a little background uh, on your own biography. I was born in a suburb of Seoul. Then I moved to the U.S. when I was seven with my parents. And I grew up in the U.S., finished my studies there, you know, college and then grad school. And then I came to South Korea a year and a half ago. So in 2018, I came to South Korea. 
you remember South Korea as a young person, but you also had a very American upbringing, even though your parents were, were Korean. In a way, you're kind of both American and South Korean. Was that part of why you wanted to go back to South Korea? Yeah, that's actually exactly why I wanted to come back. I did live in South Korea for some parts of my childhood and my, I guess, my adult life. South Korea has a mandatory military service, and um, since I was born here, I'm a Korean citizen, so I did come back here when I was 19, and I did serve two years in the Air Force. And that's when I realized that I'm Korean, but I'm American at the same time. On paper, I'm Korean, but the way I think, the way I talk, the way I express myself, the way I view South Korean culture was from a foreigner, was from, a, from an American, I guess, perspective. So that kind of gave me a lot of ideas, you know, of, of what I could do when I, if I did come back to South Korea, what kind of things I could put myself into if I came back. And then when I went back to the States, I got into reporting. When I was trying to decide after finishing my studies at OU, I was thinking about uh, either working in the U.S. Or, or somewhere else or in South Korea. I had a lot of ideas that I had formulated in the past that kind of, you know, stayed in my mind. I decided to stick to my gut and go to South Korea. Every time I come to South Korea, I feel like a, like a visitor. I did feel like a visitor in the past. It was such a strange feeling, you know, in a way, because this is my home, but it's, it's so, like, new and refreshing, something new every day. I loved connecting with the people here and... Um, so yeah, that's one of the major reasons. And another reason was uh, I, tr I was trying to connect back with my family here because I didn't have a lot of relatives. Well, I didn't have any relatives, actually, when I was growing up in the U.S. And, you know, one of the things I, I learned in the U.S., especially, you know, visiting my friend's house during the holidays or just seeing my friends with their family was that, you know, family is, is definitely a big part. Um, it should be a big part of, of anyone's life. I think it has the you know, potential to change, you know, the life of, of anyone. So I, I really try to connect with my family. And right now I'm currently living with my grandfather. That's a really powerful personal story. It's definitely one I can relate to because I, I grew up overseas and it took me a long time to reintegrate into an American way of thinking, even though I, I think my growing up overseas will always affect how I see things. It seems that you are in a kind of a perfect position to be helping explain to Americans the South Korean experience because you, you definitely understand the American worldview, the American perspective on things. I was reading this article in The Guardian and this reporter mentioned how, you know, South Koreans deal with North Korea is a good comparison to how, you know, South Koreans are dealing with the virus situation right now. Because, you know, North Korea frequently threatens the South with sayings such as, you know, we will make your land a sea of fire and they continue their missile advancements and technologies. People maybe in the U.S. might look at the news and, you know, they might say, wow, that's that's really scary. That's, you know, North Korea is right above, you know, South Korea. So that might be really scary for you guys. But actually in South Korea on the ground here, life goes on as nothing happened. You know, really it's on the news, but people, you know, they're so used to it. And I think because of the peculiar history that we have here, we have a history of invasions. We have a history of economic crises, political dictatorships. And I think South Koreans throughout the generations here, they've overcome these challenges and 
they've lived through these tough periods. So I think this time right now with coronavirus, I think is definitely another major challenge that people are really toughening up to. South Koreans are really doing a good job of keeping their spirits up and supporting each other. So, Have there been many reports uh, that are credible as far as how the virus is uh, affecting North Koreans? North Korea denied that the virus was impacting their population. Part of the reason is because its leader, Kim Jong-un, he's insisting that his state is free from uh, the coronavirus, but uh, obviously the international community is not buying that. There's been a South Korean report that soldiers died from the virus. Yeah, it seems like North Korea is still insisting that they're virus-free. It's hard to imagine that they would have the testing capabilities of South Korea. But then again, uh, you know, it's taken the U.S. quite a while to get the testing going. Earlier, you were talking about South Koreans without any symptoms were getting tested. How was that done? Did people just voluntarily ask to be tested? Or was there a government program for people who had had contact with people who developed symptoms? Were they required to get testing? When I mentioned contact tracing, the people who've been with the people who later become confirmed cases, those people were required. They were traced by the Korea Centers for Disease Prevention Control to be tested. They were traced down to be traced, uh, tested. And at the beginning of the pandemic, when there was a lot of anxiety in the air, a lot of people rushed to the ER, to, the, to their nearby hospitals, trying to be tested. And then a little later on, you know, these drive-through facilities came up uh, around Seoul and in other major cities. And I don't have the stats with me, but I know that a couple hundreds uh, would go through those drive-through every day. There's mass testing um, throughout this pandemic. I do go out sometimes to report and for other work-related reasons. But when I do go out, you know, I'm sure to you know wear a mask every time carry a hand sanitizer with me all at all times uh, when i come home i try to be isolated you know I, I mentioned that i live with my grandfather so i try not to have any contact with him inside the house so i'm kind of locking myself inside my these days uh, and we have separate bathrooms and when he uses the kitchen he uses it and then when i use it i use it when he's not there I didn't get tested because I'm keeping to myself these days and I don't meet people without a mask on and I don't have unessential meetings with people. I don't just go and meet my friends these days. So, But if you wanted a test, it would be relatively easy for you to get one. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. It'd be very cheap, very easy. I could go to one of those drive through centers and it would take me 10 minutes. David, we really appreciate you joining us on Scripps Talks to share the story with our listeners about South Korea and wish you the the best of luck as you continue to cover the story. Thank you, and I really appreciate you contacting me. I I was pretty excited. (laughs) So, yeah, it was really fun um, thinking about it, and I really had fun today.